you would produce the fruit in our life, Lord, that others can see and take joy in. Lord, that could only come by you. So do this work through Dr. Allen, through this church, God, and expand your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We pray all this in your holy name. Amen. Amen, amen. Thank you. I am glad to see you today. Did you hear what Dr. John said? Uh, Grace is four years old next week. And you know, last year, we didn't even get to have an Easter service. Remember that? So we are looking forward to this one. We hope that our Easter uh, does make a big splash and is pretty high impact. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, Dr. John told the story of the very first Easter service this morning in Bible study. Twelve people there. So hopefully we'll have a few more than 12 uh, this Sunday, Dr. John. Uh, we are on a journey and have been on a preaching journey through Mark's gospel. So I'm going to ask you to find your place with me in whatever medium you are following along in God's word, whether it's a physical copy of it like this Bible or whether you're looking on a mobile device, whatever you have. Mark chapter number 2 is where we are today. Going to begin reading in verse number 13, Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, and verse number 13. The Bible says, beginning there in verse 13, And he, that is Jesus, went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that as he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunken cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine in old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine in fresh wineskins. Well, for those of you who would like and those of you who are leading grace groups and those of you who are discipling others, let me give you a pretty good outline of all of this um, passage that you can use sometimes. And it is a good outline. I almost preached it, but I decided not to. I was going to preach a message today called Why Jesus Stinks. And you know He does to some people. 
Uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians that we are a fragrant of Christ among those who are being saved, but a fragrant of death to those who are perishing. To some folk, Jesus stinks. To other folk, he is a fragrant aroma of God. So, you know, there's something that we have to ask ourselves. Uh, which one is he to us? So I started to preach this message based on this text called Why Jesus Stinks, and there's three reasons. Here's your exegetical outline. You may want to jot it down. Jesus stinks to these religious people. And by the way, this section, there are five controversies where Jesus butted heads with the religious crowd of his day. So here it is. Number one, he stinks because of the claims that he makes. That is chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We looked at it last Sunday. In that passage, he claimed to be God. You remember that. Well, that set him at odds with the religious leaders, and ultimately that is the trumped-up charge they used at his kangaroo court trial in order to crucify him. So he stinks because of the claims he makes. You know anybody like that? You know anybody that says, Well, you know, I, I think Jesus was a good teacher. He may have been a prophet, but God? Absolutely not. To those people, Jesus stinks. Now, here's the second part of that outline. Not only does Jesus stink, stink because of the claims he makes, but he stinks to religious people because of the company that he keeps. The company that he keeps. Uh, he was hanging out with who? Tax collectors and sinners. And you know, religious folk just don't like that. Have you ever been to a church where you felt like you were on trial when you walked in? Who are you and what are you doing here? And why are you dressed like that? And how much money do you make, by the way? You ever, you ever felt like you've been in a crowd like that of religious folk? You see, Jesus hang, hung out with folk like you and me. Thank the good God of heaven, huh? So to some, some people, he stinks because of the company he keeps. Now, I told you I wasn't going to preach this out loud. I've just given it to you, so let me move on along. Here we go. Not only does he stink because of the company he keeps, but he stinks because of the customs that he ignored. Now, a lot of that is what we're going to talk about today because he just had a way of making hamburgers out of sacred cows. Have you ever noticed that? And there's a lot of things that we think are sacred, that we think are biblical, that are not. And watch me, Jesus has no regard for those things. Uh, we should really have no regard for those things. There's a lot of stuff that we add to the gospel that's not biblical, it's cultural. And we think that it's sacred and come find out Jesus has no regard for it at all. So there's your outline. Put that uh, away somewhere and you can use that when you are preaching or teaching or leading a grace group or something like that. Today I want to speak to you on this subject. Loved or hated? And you see, the reason I changed and went away from that outline and from my line of thought about Jesus thinking is because it don't bring in both sides of the equation. And I didn't want to just focus on the negative. I wanted to bring both of these, uh, both sides of the coin to the table today because I think we see both sides of that uh, uh, coin in and both sides of that equation in this text. Here's the reality. Jesus is either loved or he's hated. There is no neutral. There is no middle ground. And there's a lot of people who try to live 
in that middle ground today and they may give a comportment of not being antagonistic against Christ but I promise you they don't love him. Jesus also said as the world has hated me, guess what? It'll also hate you. So underlying the non-belief of people today who reject Jesus is this at least incipient hatred of him and what he represents and those who represent him. So the question becomes, do we love him or do we hate him? Now let's follow through this passage and we'll come to some conclusions. Notice what it is that this passage says about this subject of either loving Jesus or hating Jesus. Number one, this passage tells us that Jesus is loved by excluded sinners. You see, there's one side of the equation. He's loved by excluded sinners. Here's the other side. He's hated by the self-righteous. And that's what we find playing out in this passage. Now let's talk about the excluded sinners for a little while. Notice what it is that the Bible says. The Bible says in verse 14, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. Do any of you guys, how many of you are businessmen and you operate some type of business? Can I ask you, do you like it when you see code enforcement come into your business? Do not like code enforcement, huh? Do you like it when you get a, a, a letter in the mail from the IRS saying, we'd love to take a closer look at your taxes this year? You know, one time in my life I was a fire inspector. And here's what I noticed about being a fire inspector. Nobody was happy to see me coming. Nobody. You know, and here, here Levi was one of those types of, of people who fell into that category of being an excluded sinner. He was so excluded that, do you know, that in Judaism at this time, tax collectors were forbidden to enter into the synagogue. They couldn't go. They were forbidden. They were excluded not only from the synagogue, but they were excluded from society. Here's what rabbinic law said. Rabbinic law says if a tax collector comes into your house, he renders your house ceremonially unclean. And in order for your house to be clean, you had to get a priest to come out and clean your house. And you see, it speaks to the heart, I think, of Levi, because have you ever noticed how how Jews have a close bond with one another. I mean, they may not even know, they may be living on opposite sides of the world, but they meet on an airplane and they have Judaism in common and son, they're close. You see, Jews just have this bond that, that goes beyond what the rest of the races of the planet seem to have. And here's what Levi did. Levi was willing to turn his back on that relationship with his fellow countrymen in order to make a dollar from those old scoundrels, the Romans. So here's what the Romans did. They said, tell you what, we need some of you Jews to collect taxes from your own people. So here's what we'll do. It was a system known as tax farming, where they would get somebody who was interested in being a tax collector, and the Romans would say, now here's how much we need. But if you can get three times that, you can have the rest of it. Here's what we need. So their God really was the almighty dollar. And the rest of the Jewish society and the rest of Jewish citizens hated them because they turned their back on their fellow countrymen and they had idolatized the almighty dollar so they were excluded. They couldn't participate in anything within the Jewish community. 
Now notice what takes place. That's how excluded this guy was. By the way, Levi and Matthew, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, they are the same person. Sometimes he's referred to as Matthew. Sometimes he's referred to as Levi. Notice why excluded sinners loved Jesus. Here you go, number one, because he meets them where they are. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says in verse number 13, you ever notice that Jesus just had an affinity for the sea? He just liked it, didn't he? And here he is in verse 13 again, walking by the seashore. Well, in Capernaum, Capernaum was a place where a bunch of different roads met. So it was a perfect place for a customs booth where everybody who traveled had to pass through this customs booth and they were taxed, and, and, and the tax collector could tax them whatever he wanted to. I mean, people were totally and 100% at the will of the tax collector. He could tax them for the donkey that was pulling their cart. He could tax them for every wheel that was on the cart. He could tax them for whatever, and they didn't have any choice except to pay. Heather and I were flying out of an African country one night. We, uh, we were over there. We'd spent two weeks over there. We were teaching uh, some leadership training uh, in, a, in a place where there was tons of people from unreached people groups that we were training. And on the way out, you know, I mean, you can't go to a country like this without having some souvenirs. And we got back to the airport, and, you know, there's guys over there in military garb with M16s draped around their shoulders. And one of them caught me in one place and said, are you leaving with any souvenirs? I said, well, certainly we've got a few trinkets. He said, what are they? I pulled them out and showed them to him. He said, yeah, the tax on that is 800 francs. So I dug in my pocket, and what else are you going to do? I gave him 800 francs. I went on a little bit farther. Another guy saw me. He comes up to me and says, where are you going? And I told him, and he says, are you taking any souvenirs? I said, well, certainly. He said, what are they? I pulled them out and showed them to him. He said, that'll be 1,200 francs. I gave him 1,200 francs. We walk on a little bit farther, and there's other guy up some stairs, and he's the captain. I can tell he's got white on everybody else didn't, but he had the gun also. He came running down to me. He said, where are you going? And I told him, he said, do you have any souvenirs? I said, I have souvenirs, but your men have already taken every dollar from me. So if you want more money, here's my souvenirs. You can have them. <laughs> I mean, that's the way it was with Matthew. That's how he treated his fellow countrymen. And notice what happens here. Jesus goes and meets him where he is. Dr. John, Jesus didn't go to the synagogue and say, y'all come. He didn't. Check this out. In the synagogue where all the religious people are, Jesus didn't call disciples. Jesus got out there where sinners were. He purposefully went to where they were, and that's what he did. That's the crowd from whom he selected his closest and most dearest followers. Can I say to you, I'm 100% in with what John Wilson said this morning. We don't want to have the focus right here and say to folk, if you want to be one of us, you come up here and fit in with us. No, no. Our strategy is to go out there. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. He goes to where the sinners are. Now, I've got to run. I could spend a lot of time there, but I've got to run. By the way, not long ago, there was, a, there was a prominent rabbi, and he was leading a conference, a Hebrew conference, and one of the students asked this prominent rabbi, he said, Sir, he said, what is the most drastic difference that you see between 
the Gospels and the ministry of Jesus and Old Testament Judaism and, 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 and rabbinic customs. And the rabbi went to this verse right here. He said, here is the most stark difference between the old way and what Jesus did. Mind you, he's a Jew. He said, he says, Judaism allows for sinners to come home. He said, but they've got to meet a prescribed path of penance and sacrifice. He said, but Jesus went out there to where they were, gathered them to himself. He says, that's the biggest difference. I thought, man, what an observation to be made by a rabbi himself. So here's why excluded sinners love Jesus. Because they go where he goes where they are. Man, I just got to stop and tell you a story. I've got a pastor friend. And they have uh, grace groups, kind of like we do. Except they meet during the, during the day for lunch. And he told me, he said... One of my groups wants to meet at this bar on Fernandina Beach, and it's called the Hammerhead. He said, if my deacons find out that I'm eating lunch at the Hammerhead, I'm fired. But he said, guess what I'm going to do? I said, I ain't got a clue. He said, I'm going to the Hammerhead. So he went down to the Hammerhead, and a lot of the guys that were in this discipleship group were rough I mean, they're just rough guys, you know, not been saved long, and that's the crowd from which they come out of. So they go down, and they're sitting, and they're talking, and the pastor's leading this session about the, the message that they preached on Sunday and how it applies and how we should live it out. Stop it on pause. That was Wednesday. Sunday morning, my friend is preaching at his church. And he gets done and he gives an appeal as we always do, saying if there's anyone here that God's worked in your life and you'd like to respond in faith to Jesus Christ today, I'll be right here, come on. And he said, from way in the back, there was this big rough dude stepped out. And he said, he was coming, he was coming hard down the aisle straight at me. And he said, I was thinking there, thinking, dear God, do I run? Hi, do I get under the front row? What do I do? And he said, this big old burly guy comes down, runs right up to him, and he said, just grabs me and bear hugs me. He said, I disappeared in all of that man. He said, you couldn't even see me. I was in here somewhere in his armpit. He said, he was squeezing me. And he said, when he finally composed himself to where he could talk, he said, do you know me? And my pastor friend said, sir, I'm sorry, but I don't recognize you. He said, I didn't think you would recognize me. He said, let me tell you who I am. He said, Wednesday, I was sitting in the booth just behind y'all. I heard everything you said at that meeting. And he said, this Jesus whom you're talking about, I realize I need him worse than I need my next breath. Son, that's what it means to go where they are. What would have happened if he would have said, I can't go down there to that hammerhead bar and have lunch in there. Hey, that's where the sinners are. Have you ever noticed Jesus hung out with tax collectors, publicans, and sinners? Wow. Well, notice what else the Bible says. When he meets them where they are, what does he do? Well, he meets them where they are, but he doesn't wallow in their sin with them. My friend was at the hammerhead, but he wasn't throwing something back in there with them. He was in there telling the story. So what does Jesus do when he meets sinners on their turf? When he meets them where they are, number one, he issues them a command. He issues a command. Look what the command was. Follow me. 
Have you ever noticed Jesus doesn't give invitations like we do? Oh, if you would just please accept Jesus as your Savior. He could do so much. Jesus never stood before somebody wringing his hands, begging them to respond to his command. Here's the deal. When Jesus comes to where you are, when he gets in your business, he's going to give you a command. The command is follow me. Now the onus is on you. Because you've only got two choices. You're going to be obedient or you're going to disobey him. You're going to love him or you're going to hate him. There's no neutral. There's no middle ground. What are you going to do? Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. And here's the commandment. Follow me. And here's what that word means. And it is, Dr. John, it is a present imperative, but it's an elision of two words. And those two words, when you put them together, it, here's what it means. It means to walk the same path. So you know what Jesus is asking you to do when he says, follow me? He's asking you to walk the same road that he walks. He's asking you to walk the same trail. He's literally asking you to put your feet in his shoes. And boy, then you'll have a different perspective. Well, when Jesus meets them where they are, number one, he gives them a command. But number two, he offers companionship. I love this. Follow me. Now let me get my geek on with you, my language geek. In the original language, that is that, that follow me is an instrumental of association. If we translated that from Greek, the original language of the New Testament, into English, here's the way we'd literally translate it. Follow with me. Follow with me. You see, Jesus don't say get on the road and he's like a long-distance marathon runner, takes off and leaves you in the dust. He stays right there with you. You are in his company. You're in his fellowship. And you are following along literally in his presence. So when Jesus meets you where you are, he doesn't run off and leave you. He offers you companionship and says, hey, stay right here with me. Let's walk this road of life together. Checking out, not, not only does he issue a command, not only does he offer companionship, but here's what those who respond positively do. They obey at great cost. Look what it is the Bible says. The Bible says he got up. I love Luke's version of this same story. Dr. Luke says he got up, left everything, and followed, get this, here it is again, followed with him. So he, he obeyed at great cost. As a matter of fact, there's a debate today about which one of the disciples had the greatest cost involved in, in following Christ. And I think it's Levi or Matthew. You know why? Because here's what happened with Peter and James and John, the ones that he's called so far, and Andrew. They were what? They were fishermen. They walked away from their fishing business, but guess what they could have done? They could have, and Peter even did, go back to it. Because he didn't burn any bridges, did he? But guess what? When you tell the Roman government, <laughs> I ain't working for you no more, they put you on a blacklist, and you don't go back to that job no more, so you're done. You're done. So Matthew saw something in Jesus, and this probably wasn't the first time to meet him. He'd watched him. He'd been around Galilee, I mean around Capernaum. He'd heard of all the miracles. He'd been seeing what this new radical Jewish teacher was doing and saying. 
So he got up and he followed him because he saw something that he wanted. And he was willing to walk away from everything. Left his job, left his career, left everything. Well, not only does Jesus meet them where they are. Hey, here's why excluded sinners love Jesus. Because he meets you where you are. Number two, he makes them new people. Here's what he does. He makes excluded sinners new people. Guess what? All of a sudden, those who have been rejected now find acceptance. Can I say to you that if you are accepted in the beloved and you know it, it doesn't matter who else rejects you. You and Christ are a majority in any situation. And here's what happened. He makes some new people. And all of a sudden, the outcast becomes the in crowd. Those who were once shunned are now embraced by this phenomenal new Jewish leader. Can you imagine? They'd been shunned. They couldn't even come to church. And now the pastor comes to them and embraces them. So what happens when Jesus makes you new? There are three elements here that we see in this passage that new people do. When Jesus meets you on your own turf, when he makes you new, here's what you do. Number one, new people celebrate. They celebrate. Check out what Matthew did. It happened, uh, that is, he was reclining at the table in his house. What's going on here? I love, again, the Luke story. Luke says that Matthew threw a great feast. There was a celebration. Jerry, this man had been radically born again, been made new, placed his faith in Jesus, been saved, whatever you want to call it, and all of a sudden now all he wants to do is throw a party and celebrate this. You know, we don't do a good job of that. We really don't. I don't know what it is. It's something about our U.S. Bible Belt culture. We just don't know how to celebrate spiritual things. We don't. One of the things that Dane and I appreciate so much about Brazilians is they know how to do that. They celebrate spiritual things. They have this uh, custom that they call axões de graças. And here's what you do. You've been praying for somebody to be saved for a long time. That person is saved. Guess what? There's a party. You've been asking people to pray because you've got your ox in a ditch and the church has been praying for you for three months over this situation. God answers. Guess what you do? You throw a party. And son, you get all the shuhasku, all of the barbecue. You kill the fatted calf. You kill the, the, the pig. And you barbecue all day and folk come all night. And you give testimony several times about what God's done for you. They sing songs. I can't tell you how many axões y graças I have preached in Portuguese over the years. Because those folk know how to celebrate. Hey, the Bible says that the angels of heaven rejoice. But somebody gets saved in a Baptist church and we just, oh, well, that's good. <laughs> good for you, brother. I'm happy for you. Man, just one time I want to see folks swinging from the rafters when somebody gets saved. You know what I'm saying? That's good stuff. Say? Oh, you did? Yeah, you remember that. It was this time last year. I looked it up. I asked Heather the other day. I said, when did we baptize Jamie and Alicia in Cliff's Pond behind his house? And it was March 29th? Yeah, March 29th is what Heather said. She went back on Facebook. Facebook's good for something, isn't it? And I remember that. 
Look here, after we baptized him in that lake, we just were spontaneously caught up in the good news and we just went and jumped back overboard again. <laughs> Celebrate. Celebrate. Man, that's what Sunday ought to be every day. I mean, shouldn't that be, this should be a celebration every Sunday. Boy, I hope we have a good one next Sunday. It ought to be, it ought to be the, the top shelf of, of celebrations because we've got something to celebrate. The fact that the stone is rolled away and the tomb is empty. Notice what else these folk do. Here's what, here's what happens when Jesus makes people new. Number one, they celebrate. Number two, they congregate. Check this out. Matthew says it, says it two times. Or Mark says it two times. Notice what he says. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus. Look, if you didn't catch it the first time, look what he says again at the end of that verse. For there were many of them. Wow. You know what? Jesus puts a natural... When you're born again, you just have this natural innate desire to celebrate. Huh? You do. I mean, here was Matthew. Can you imagine his testimony that night? He probably at some point stood up on a chair in a meeting and said, Brothers, everybody who's here congregating, and there was probably two or three hundred of them. Why were there so many of them? Because they had heard that there was somebody accepting people who had been shunned. They'd probably been longing to be included in something. Jesus comes along and includes them, and son, the house is filled up. There are many of them. Matthew probably stood up on a chair that night and said, Hey, boys, y'all probably wondering why I called this little meeting. Let me tell you. Because you know how we are ostracized from society. You know how we're looked down on. You know how we can't go to the synagogue. You know how we can't go into somebody's house. You know all of that. He said, well, I found somebody who has accepted me just the way I am. And he has made me into a new person. And here's the desire he's put in my heart. He's put in my heart a desire to celebrate this new life he's given me. He's given me a desire to share that with all of my friends. He's given me that desire. And yes, oh, by the way, I lost my job. I don't know how I'm going to pay rent next week, but I've got Jesus, let's party. I mean, that's what he did. That was the scenario. See, when you're born again, when Jesus makes you new, you have this innate tendency and desire to want to celebrate. Good God, have mercy on our souls for turning what ought to be a celebration into a funeral. You ever been to a church and you felt like you was at a funeral? Somebody died? My goodness. He puts this innate tendency in us to celebrate. So that what do new people do? Number one, they celebrate. Number two, they congregate. You know, here's, here's a dealio. People who are born again, you don't have to beat them over the head and make them feel guilty about not coming to church, do you? Because they want to be together with other folk who celebrate spiritual things. They just do. We don't ever want to be legalistic and say, you got to do this, you got to do that. We just believe, by golly, if Jesus has done something in your life, you are not going to forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as some do, the writer of the Hebrews say. But we're going to come together on Sunday and we're going to, we're going to not only congregate, but we're going to celebrate. Alright, number three, not only do people who are made new celebrate, not only do they congregate, but here you go, they also navigate. Check it out. Look in verse number 15. 
for there were many of them, and here it is, and they were following him. Boy, this little evangelistic feast that Levi threw, it was pretty successful, was it not? All of a sudden now, here's the major discipleship word in the Gospel of Mark. They were following him. You know what that means? Again, that word means to, to walk the same path, to walk down the same road. Here's what it means to follow Jesus. It means that now they are living life by orienting their position to Him. You see, we understand what that means. We know what GPS is. And we know what navigating means. You know that group that Mac's a part of, Navigators? Here's why it's called Navigators. Because you navigate through life based on where Jesus is. I do this because Jesus is doing it. I go this way because that's what Jesus is doing. My entire life is oriented by where He is and by what He's doing. You know what that means? That means Jesus is my North Star in life. That means when something comes up and I've got to make a decision, I don't make that decision based strictly on emotions or on finances or on what everybody else is saying. But here's what I want to know. Where is my North Star in this? Where is Jesus? Because people who have been made new, they live their life based on the orientation of where Christ is. What would He have me do? And if I'm walking this road with Him, then I'm following Him. It doesn't matter ultimately about anything else. If He's going down this road, then I'm going down this road. And I'm going down it with Him. Well, here we go. i got to run. Loved or hated? Well, Jesus is loved by excluded sinners, hated by the self-righteous. You know, and here's why I say self-righteous. Look what Jesus' answer was when they asked Him, what are you doing hanging out with those people? Look what He said in verse 17. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Man, I wish we had tone inflection in that sentence because I'm sure Jesus had His tongue in His cheek. He was saying to those folk, you think you're righteous, but you're not. You see, the person who is the farthest away from throwing a celebration based on what Christ has done in their life is the person that thinks he's okay with God because he's a pretty good fella. And Jesus is saying here, no, you're not righteous, you're self-righteous. I'd a whole lot rather hang out with folk who are sick and know they're sick than folk who are sick and don't know they're sick but think they're healthy. And that's what Jesus is saying. Hey, get this. We're all sick puppies. Did you know that? You're sick. The Bible says there is none righteous. No, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there's not no amount of being good that you can ever accomplish to overcome that. There's only one thing. And that's responding to the command to follow me. To let Jesus make you into a new person. Number next, i got to hurry. Not only is Jesus loved by excluded sinners and hated by the self-righteous, but finally Jesus is loved by exhausted servants and hated by the spiritual police. Now, I don't know if you have ever encountered somebody who thought they were a spiritual policeman, but this is what these folk thought they were. 
the scribes of the Pharisees. And even, hey, it's legalism. People who want to tell you what you've got to do and what you can't do and where you can go and what you can't and who you can't hang out and what you can't hang And they have all these rules. And that's what these folk were. And look who even was sucked into that. The Bible says that the disciples of John were sucked into it. Hey, if you're not careful, you'll be sucked into that type of belief system as well. Based on rules. And can I tell you, that'll exhaust you. You will be exhausted. Because there's no way that you can live up to the rules and expectations of religious people. You just cannot do it. And listen, there's something wrong when we give the impression to folk who come here for the first time that you've got to do this, do this, do this, do this. You can't do that, do that, do that, do that. I talked to a man the other day. Get this. This is what he said. He's going to a church. He's been raised Baptist, been away from it most of his life because he's never been born again. He was drugged to church by mom and dad. You know what I'm saying? And he's been going back trying to find... He's yearning for something spiritual in his life and he's been going to this church and that's all he's been getting. You must, you must, you must, you must. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. You know what he did? He converted to Roman Catholicism. You know why? Because he said, there's no way I can live up to what Baptists tell me I've got to be. And I thought, dear God in heaven... There's something wrong with the message we're preaching when it gives folk the impression that there's no way they can do it. I want to tell you, it's exhausting. It's exhausting when you're trying to live up to a bunch of standards and rules and expectations. And that's what these Pharisees had put on people. Jesus said, woe are you who put heavy burden on men's shoulders and you yourself can't even carry them. Check it out. Notice what? The Bible says about these exhausted servants. Man, I want to tell you something. When Jesus lifts the load of religion off of you, you'll celebrate. That's all there is to it. Don't let somebody put a bunch of garbage on you and tell you you've got to carry it. Notice three things I think the Scripture teaches us about this. Number one, it teaches us that Jesus can't be toned down into extended sadness. Notice what it was that the Pharisees said. Look, John's disciples and the disciples, uh, uh, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they come to Jesus and said, "Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not?" And Jesus said, and look what he did. He compared his arrival to a wedding. Now we don't get that because in our culture, a wedding wasn't what it was in their culture. You see, in that culture, a wedding celebration was an extended period of joyous feasting. It most of the time lasted for a week. And anybody that was participating in that week-long celebration, they had an automatic excuse from work. They had a pass from religious responsibilities. It was just one big extended feast. And Jesus says, they can't fast because I'm here with them. You see, fasting had been turned into something that was solemn and sad and torturous. Have you ever felt like going to church was like driving bamboo shoots under your fingernails? And you just, by golly, didn't want to do it because it was torturous and burdensome? I hope you don't experience that at Grace Church. But I have experienced that. I've encountered that. And Jesus said, look, 
you can't tone down what I'm doing while I'm here and turn it into something sad. The rabbis had done come up with all of these laws. Matter of fact, Monday and Thursday were the fasting days. And you had to let everybody know you were fasting because you, you, had, you had to make your face look like you were, you were sad. You had to be solemn. You had to be drab. And you had to be dreary. And they come to Jesus as a spiritual police and say, here's what we're doing because we're spiritual. Why aren't your disciples doing it? And basically, here's what, here's what the Bible tells us. You can't tone Jesus down into extended periods of sadness. Now, I'm not telling you you're going to be on the mountaintop every day of your life. There is a time for fasting. There's a time for everything. But can I say to you that what Jesus does ought to negate a whole lot of what drags us down. You just can't tone him down. Um, have you got a footage, uh, a, a clip for me? Check out this video clip. I love it. Here, here, you can't tone Jesus down just like you couldn't tone these guys down. Watch them. don't you? Them guys were celebrating, wasn't they? I love the monkey that's got the cigar and he's burning a dollar bill in the other one. <laughs> and then the old spiritual police comes up and says, no guys, this graph doesn't show sales are up, it's down. They don't like that. I like it better when it's up. That ought to be the way we are. Hey, I lost my job. Got a bad diagnosis from the doctor this week. The market's in the tank. My 401k is gone. But let's party! Because <laughs> Jesus is good. Notice what else. Jesus cannot be toned down into extended periods of sadness. Some of the monkeys, they were sad for how long? <laughs> Just long enough to turn the chart back up right, huh? Number next, Jesus can't be tacked on to our existing system. He can't be toned down. He can't be tacked on. Boy, this is what so many people try to do. Look what Jesus said. No one sews a, a patch of unshrunken cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch, when it begins to shrink, pulls away from it. The new from the old and the worse, a worse tear results. You know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid here's what most folk try to do. They've already got them a system. They've already got their life planned out. They know what they want to do. And they just tack Jesus onto that. And they expect it to work. And it and all ends up being ruined. Hey, you can't just tack Jesus onto your plans. Jesus becomes the plan. Check it out, i got to run. Not only... Can Jesus not be tacked on to our existing system? But Jesus can't be boxed in by exhausted structures. Check out the next verse. He gives another example. No one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, 
and the skins as well. But one puts new wine, get this, one puts new wine, two Greek words, neos. You know that word, neonatal, new, young. Nobody puts neos wine, new wine, but, but you put new wine into kainos, a different word, wine skins. One refers to new in, in time, new in duration. The other means new in kind. You know what he's telling us? He's telling us when Jesus moves into your heart, he makes you a new kind of person. And you see, there's no way that you could take the new wine of the gospel of Jesus Christ and try to pour it into the box that you already have. Hear me. Most of us, whether you know it or not, you've got a worldview, how things work. That's your box. You can't fit Jesus into that box. He'll kick both sides of it out. And so many people, that's where they stop because they know that Jesus is going to ruin their neat little system. Get this a lot of times because so many people have not only a worldview box, but they've got a theology box. They've got it all figured out. How God is, what God's like, who God is, what God does, what God doesn't do. And then all of a sudden, the Word comes along. And here's what we get. If I'm lying, I'm dying. You just ask these men. John Wilson to get a call this week and somebody will say, I heard Pastor Richie say that. Do y'all believe this? Colin Dollar will be sitting in his office at Baptist College of Florida and somebody will come in and shut the door and say, Do y'all actually believe this? It's the Baptist College of Florida. And you know what happens when we get those questions like that from folks? What they're saying is, I can't fit that into my theological box. If I do, it's going to destroy my box. And I'm not going to let you destroy my box. And those folk never come back. Because hear me, I don't want to serve a God that I can contain Him completely within the limited capacity of my cranium. You know what I'm saying? That's the thing about our God. He is infinite. He is so big. Hey, He has given us what we need to know right here. And this blows my mind. I can't even comprehend this. There's no way. My life's not long enough. The reason our life will go on in eternity is because there's so much more of God. Every day in eternity for the next 10 billion years, morning by morning, new mercies you're going to see. So here's what Jesus does. When all of a sudden Jesus comes to your place where you are and He says, follow me. Walk this path with me. And you respond positively. He makes you new. You're a new person. And here's what Paul said. Here's how Paul described it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 17. If any person is in Christ, he's been patched up. If any person is in Christ, he's been remodeled. No, listen, if any person in Christ, he is a new creation. Get this. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. Hey, loved or hated. Love, people who love him run to him. There's no middle ground. Those who hate him run from him. 
Has he got in your business and issued a command to follow me? Hey, listen to me. What he's offering you is better than anything that you could possibly accumulate without him. Just ask Matthew. Matthew got up, walked away from everything. And look what God did with him. Took this old tax collector who was excluded, who was a throwaway, who was the scum and dregs of society. And God used that man to pen one of the Gospels we have in our Bibles today. No telling what God can do if we'll just get up and follow him. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And God, would you help us be like those tax collectors and sinners that day when Jesus went and ate with them. God, would you help us be people who celebrate 